0: This is Out of the Crisis. I am Eric Reese. After part one, I hope you have a sense of Zeynep. If you missed it, you really should go back and hear that conversation. So you can get a sense of her background and why she has such a unique perspective about our current struggles. In that conversation, we left off right as Zeynep was drafting her first article about the pandemic. It was for Scientific American. And as you'll hear, and it's kind of hard to remember that this was just a few months ago, her recommendations were seen as so controversial, she was worried it might be the last article she would ever write. As you'll see, it was a pretty unusual set of circumstances that even led to her getting the article past her editor. And yet, now her recommendations are accepted by pretty much every authority as common sense because they were grounded in science, in facts, and in her rigorous empirical approach. In this conversation, we'll talk a lot about Zeynep's activism around masks for all, anti-shaming people at the beach, and what policies we actually need to get out of the crisis. Given her past history of calling things right, I recommend we all pay attention to what she has to say. Here's part two of my conversation with Zeynep Tofeche. So tell me how you came to write for Scientific American about the pandemic.
1: I had been writing for the Scientific American the year before, and I owed them a blog post. So put that as a parenthesis. When the pandemic hit, I was like more focused first on myself and my own work in Hong Kong. I was thinking, will I be able to go back and when and how is this going to evolve and just doing my own stuff for a while. And then I started realizing at the end of January that we were going to get hit. The article came out that explained that we were getting atypical clinical cases. Basically, we couldn't use fever guns to keep this in the way we did with SARS. And there was clearly like, there's a case in Thailand, there's a case here, it was spreading. I'm like, all right, this is out. Like this cat is out of the bag and we're going to get hit. Uh, will we get lucky uh, like we did with SARS early on? I don't know, but it's 2020, right? It doesn't look like the world is at its most competent. So I started thinking we're going <laughs> to get hit very badly.
0: I shouldn't laugh, but I mean...
1: I know, mean, it's perfectly please but that's, laugh.
0: But no, but that, it's, it's macabre, but it's true.
1: Gallows humor is great. I'm from the Middle East. We laugh at everything like this. Yeah, I, but hold
0: on. But the thing I want to ask you, though, is a lot of us, okay... A lot of us were reading the same social media that you were reading. A lot of us saw the asymptomatic spread. We saw the lack of feet. Like a lot of people had the same information that you had, but you put the pieces together and realized something that the rest of us didn't pretty early.
1: How and why? So one of the things is I was worried about the Ebola pandemic too. I wasn't worried it was going to spread. Ebola is not very pandemic friendly, but I was worried that we were letting pandemic potential epidemics kind of get out of hand too easily and we were underfunding and not paying attention to this. So this was already on my radar. So that's one good thing in trying to be in the moment is if you've been paying attention to something. So I got to be honest about that. This was something I was always paying attention to. But the thing that really got me, I think, to connect the dots was the fact that China took drastic measures, but the rest of the world did not. It's kind of like with authoritarian regimes, the goal here is look at what they do, not what they say. is a pretty good rule of thumb. And if you want to understand how severe a threat is, I don't care what they say, I'm going to look at what they do. And when they shut down Wuhan, you'll notice all the countries that were used to dealing with China, like they locked down to, they're like, oh, the plague is going to hit us. It was this mm-hmm. loud signal. I don't care what any other message came out of there might have been, blah, 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 blah. It's, you know, in Peanut, there's these things in adults appear like, me, 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 me. you can't tell what they're <sighs> saying. That's what usually like authoritarian regimes and propaganda, you get trained in that. Just look at what they're doing and forget the PR. Because that's what a lot of their statements are. So when China shut down Wuhan, I went on alert. I went on, okay, I I, I remember uh, just both tweeting publicly for the first time because I wasn't really saying a lot. I just saying, oh, wow. And then I started telling people around me and making plans. I said, my life's going to change. That was, I think, an important thing. And after that, the thing that I think that helped me this together is an understanding of um, complex systems and nonlinear dynamics in the context of globalization and understanding that we had already been underfunding and not paying attention to all of this at the same time. I thought we were getting this loud signal, but we're not acting as if we're seeing the signal. China shutting down was telling us we have mm-hmm. to take this like priority number one. There's no way a country like that is going to sabotage its own economy for a mild threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, the authorities there may be authoritarian, but they're not stupid. That's what got me to really start taking it seriously. And then I started reading the scientific articles coming out. And then we saw the in Jan- in February the asymptomatic or atypical clinical spread came out in like multiple pieces. And then you put two and two together. If people can be out and about in the world without having a fever and yet infecting others, and you have this much global travel.
0: A nightmare scenario. Epidemiologists have been worrying about for a long time. Yeah,
1: it's going to its going to happen. Like there's the amount of travel in even just a week and asymptomatic uh, transmission plus um, all the, what's the right word, like foot dragging? I wanted Mm -hmm. the World Health Organization to declare a pandemic. I wanted like I wanted this to be number one. Instead, what I was seeing was a lot of articles that was looking at this through the polarization lens in the US. People Mm -hmm. were arguing is the travel ban from China xenophobic or not? What about should we ban sort of lunar new year? Is it sort of racist? You don't understand. Of course, the the people like Asian Americans want to protect themselves too. Like it's not racist to say this originated in this part of the world. So people traveling from there are obviously going to be the first order risk. And then, of course, then the second order is going to be Europeans, as we saw, and then it went from there. So it's completely reasonable to say, how do we protect all our communities? We couldn't have Mm -hmm. that discussion, partly because everybody fights the last war. The travel ban immediately evoked the Muslim ban. And then everybody Mm -hmm. started discussing it in that framework rather than thinking is this the right target? Is this too late? What else can we do? What else do we need to shut down? It wasn't like a reasonable discussion.
0: It kind of plays into you've been very clear on the importance of crisis communications for governments, especially. And what I I was thinking about as this was all happening is that this is the reason why governments shouldn't squander their credibility
1: on nonsense issues.
0: There may one day come a time when you need to be able to speak to your whole population and be taken seriously. And if you reflexively polarize everything, you lose the ability to do that.
1: And also, if you do enact Muslim bans, then every kind of restriction on travel will just immediately fall into that framework. And, and yet, uh, well, yet, yeah.
0: now what we know now, if you don't mind me going back to reinterpret, mm-hmm. it seems based on the data we have now that at the time that all these bans were being debated, we already had uh, yes. community spread of the virus in the US already. Okay.
1: It was too little too late. So the yeah. problem wasn't that it was a ban. The problem was it was a stupid ban. So uh, like Taiwan, far yeah, far too late and far too limited because Americans coming back, they weren't necessarily banned. But they're, this mm-hmm. virus may have a geographical origin, but it doesn't pick on people <laughs> from one citizenship. You have to do that. Second thing was you have to put screening on top of any ban, because clearly there's going to be and it's going to spread elsewhere, and then you're going to get it. So by the time like they did the travel ban, it was it was almost pointless.
0: And and yet it directed all of our energy and discussion (laughs) issue.
1: Correct. On the wrong end of that issue that it was too little too late. And it was also targeted improperly. And of course, you know, it probably is their reflex, right? This administration just likes to ban people from coming in. So they mind and I even thought about it so it was just a terrible thing and then I also started seeing a lot of people telling me not to panic because right now because there's been a lot of alarmism there's a way in which all warnings get associated with misinformation it was then; it's not right now right now it's flipped but back then if you try to, say it's hard something, to even
0: remember that
1: yeah right back then when you try to say something you if it was alarmist you got treated like a prepper preparing for the asteroid strike, just baseless alarmism. And I'm kind of like, you know what? There's a lot of baseless alarmism, but then there's the actual risk, right? Pandemics are endemic to human history. This is not a baseless alarmist thing. So this is how I came to write The Scientific American. I spent February frustrated that in a lot of traditional media outlets, They were publishing articles, beware of the pandemic panic, don't ban travel from China because that would be racist rather than the argument we just Mm -hmm. said. It was like not the correct framework at the time. I saw a lot of things saying it's not necessarily going to be a pandemic. What about the flu kills lots more people? Like I saw so many of these articles.
0: One of the things that's really struck me, a lot of the nonsense debate at that time was about whether, sure, authoritarian countries have this advantage in fighting pandemics because they don't care about human life, but democracies will never be able to follow. <laughs> and I remember one of the points that you made, I don't know if this was on Twitter or if it, you must have written an article about it as well was actually, no, you have it all backwards. Uh, Authoritarian governments get in their own way yeah, because they suppress dissent and suppress their own ability to get the information they need to act quickly. Do you want to just elaborate on that one a little bit?
1: Which actually happened to us too. Yeah. I mean, we're not a full-blown authoritarian regime, but the channels that would go up to a functioning White House uh, were pushed back because we got in the way of our own warnings like we have a lot of health public health people who are trying to sound the warning but could not bubble up to the top of the CDC and top of the White House partly because it was seen as a problem for the re-election strategy if we have a pandemic it, or we have like health warnings they'll just tank the stock market and that won't be good but of course if you have if you avoid taking precautions you're going to do worse obviously as we are at the moment so uh, we were in fact stepping on our own signals mm-hmm. partly because of the uh, you've seen this if you work in a corporate environment if you have an environment in which nobody will communicate the bad news up right. You, right. yeah you get all the yes men and women and then if something big is about to happen you don't find out till it's too late so that's, that's just just Yeah, that's human institutions. That's always the case. And that was how we ended up too. And the other part is, of course, we tend to look at Asia as over there and we're exempt because I remember lots of people in Italy saying, we looked at Wuhan and thought of it as some foreign land. It'll never affect us. And then New Yorkers looked at, you know, Northern Italy and it was some foreign land and then Florida looked at New York and said, oh, that's just New York's time. I mean, there's, this virus doesn't really care about your sort of citizenship or place. It cares if you have the the AC receptors or not, which we do. There was this sort of denial. There was literal like, denial in media. There was
0: literal, literal denial, yeah. And, <laughs> and for those who have never seen the process work up close, I've worked in helping a lot of uh, large organizations in government and private sector where, when you have levels and information transmission through the levels, I've, I've actually watched reports circulate up through the levels where I have a relationship with all of the executives in the chain, from the lowest person on the factory floor up to the CEO. And you start with a report that says the factory is on fire, and the next, and it gets rounded down to the factory is very hot and is dangerously warm. And then, you know, by the time you get to the CEO, sometimes the information has been radically distorted to the point where the factory is actually doing great. It's, you know, the hottest factory ever, Right. good, yeah. good news. There and it's not, go. no one's being malicious. Right. But I think the other thing I wanted to ask you about is what I've seen in the private sector, certainly, is that this is also a function of incentive design and organizational structure, that you can build organizations and leadership cultures that are better or worse, at this kind of direct transmission of information. And what are your thoughts about what the pandemic has revealed about our institutions compared to maybe some other countries?
1: I I think it's shown that we're just as prone to groupthink and that process you just said where everybody sucks up to the level up, whatever it is. And here, if you want an example of how much of this is groupthink rather than one particular message, is Mm -hmm. that leading up to the pandemic, I think, leading up to like February, March, the groupthink was chill. It's the flu. Don't panic. Don't be racist. It'll never happen here. If it does, we'll manage it anyway. That was the groupthink. Right now, it's flipped. Since the beginning of summer, it's the mutant ninja virus. We're helpless. We'll never have immunity. People are getting reinfected. Look, I mean, there's some article that comes out that says antibodies wane, which they do because that's what they do. And then I'm seeing like articles saying, we'll never have immunity.
0: Oh, if you read that scientific paper and then the science coverage of it and then the, co- the political coverage Perfect. of the science coverage of the paper, it's the same thing. By the time you're four levels in, the original scientific finding has been completely reversed.
1: What we have is now the what's sensationalized is the worst possible interpretation. That it mm-hmm. is like, you don't ever have good news breakthrough almost. Everything gets, um, every t- even if there's a little outbreak that hasn't done anything or killed anyone, if it fits some framework, like if it involves anyone we want to moralize, it's get this massive coverage. Whereas in February, it was just completely the other way around. But they're both group sync, right? They're both not looking at what's actually in front of us. But it's more like we're now in a panic mode. And the doom scrolling, everybody's just in this very doom scrolling mode. And you're getting a lot of that amplified. I'm not saying we're not in trouble, but there is a bunch of good news happening and not everything, like it's not, there's stuff that just doesn't break through. And finally, like, uh, I finally saw somebody write an article saying the reinfection thing is not a thing. I, somebody in the New York times finally wrote it because there have been so much panic over these alleged reinfections and we're never going to have immunity and oh my God, the antibodies waned. That is, it's just a flip version of the, it's just the flu. You see what I'm saying? Right. are Taking, making too little of it. And right now it's tr- turned into the mutant ninja virus that we're powerless against, which is not the case either. I'm not saying the center is always, I'm not a moderate. I don't, because sometimes the extreme position is correct. But it's more like the, it's not that the center is correct. It's more like the groupthink is dangerous. But it's very common. It's a very human thing. It's very common and it requires this constant fight to not fall into it. And I don't think anybody's immune to it, right? It's like, it's not something that anybody can say, I never do it because that's just a very big part of being human. So in February, when I sort of, realized that a lot of people around me were still traveling. And it's like, uh, mid February, I saw that people, yeah, people were going to conferences. And I was watching, like, uh, I checked the local Facebook groups, they're really good indicators of where people are, people were planning, like they were hearing about it. And they were saying, should I go to Disneyland? Should I go to this conference? Should I do this? Should I do this pretty high risk things clearly. And they were passing around these articles. Be aware of the pandemic panic kind of stuff that I saw. Yeah. They were pacing them around and saying, chill, go, enjoy your life. They're just trying to scare you. Don't give in to the scare mongering. Don't give in to the racism. Like I saw that. And I thought, this is terrible because we're going to get people killed. Uh, and we're going to, more importantly, overwhelm our hospitals. Of course, not more importantly, but. Uh, We're going to overwhelm our hospitals and that's going to get a lot more people killed because once you have hospitals overwhelmed, it's just going to be unmanageable because that's what we saw in Wuhan. I already had seen it in Wuhan. So I owed Scientific American a blog post and I actually was writing for The Atlantic at the time. I had switched to them and I said, do you want an article on the pandemic? They're like, nah, okay. Uh, They didn't want that one at the time. I don't know why. Um, I've since written like, a lot for them. and It's been great. And I think at the time, it just wasn't my thing. It wasn't an area I wrote in. Uh, and they said, nah, uh, okay. And I said, you know what, I owe Scientific American a post. So I'm just going to put it there. And that way I'll both get it out and uh, fulfill my sort of final obligation to them. And, all. and then my uh, editor at Scientific American was uh, having his first grandchild that week. So I wrote it up and I said, here's the post I owe you guys. And he said, yeah, I'm busy. sent me this cute baby picture. I said, that's very cute. Just let me know because normally we edit a little bit. There's a bit of fact checking. There's a bit of uh, polishing. And he just put it up. (laughs) There was a minor fact check, but I literally got, I have some typos and spelling errors and I had one decimal point wrong. Normally I get to those things before it goes up. I had sent him to draft and I was going to sit down and carefully read it. So that I didn't have typos and things, but he just put it up because who can blame him? He's busy. And I thought, okay, it's up. And and then I started, I, I mean, I literally wrote it so I would have something to send to people saying, please stop traveling. Please start getting ready. Please start getting ready to stay home. And also something explaining flatten the curve because I knew the concept, but it wasn't out there at all. Like it was, uh, epidemiologists know the concept, of course. I knew the concept, but it was not being talked about, and I can't even trace if there's any other mainstream media article talking about it before I wrote that one. I mean, it's not my concept; it just wasn't being talked about. And I wanted to explain flatten the curve because these kinds of epidemics don't have a fixed R naught, like the transmission, or they don't have a, a fixed uh, CFR, the the fatality rate. It's a function of your resources, your social contacts, like how f- much you facilitate the virus uh, spreading effects or not, and how you treat it affects the fatality rate. So if your hospital is overrun, more people are going to die. Besides, if your hospitals are uh, overrun, more people are going to die of heart attacks. So these are basic stuff we all know now. But at the time, like, people weren't talking about this a lot. So I just wrote it. So I would have something to send to people to say, please stop. Please don't do this. Please don't listen to the people telling you to ignore this. Uh, we got to get ready. You got to do your shopping, you know, stock up on your things. At the time, masks weren't really available already. And I said, you know what? They're not available. Just don't worry about it. Do what you can because mm-hmm. they were kind of already in shortage. Just wrote this. And, two,
0: and what was the response like to the article? One?
1: It, was, it was very good. It was very good in the sense that, one, it spread a lot. In fact, I wrote, like, for Scientific American, I wrote for a year for them, and I wrote two blog posts, one about sociological storytelling in Game of Thrones. I know it's funny, but it's really about, like, how do we analyze things? And I just used Game of Thrones last season as a vehicle for that. And one was this. And they both did really well for their sort of... I mean, Scientific American is not used to going viral, necessarily. That's not the thing they do. I saw lots of people online, sort of... They were People were looking for this. Like, they needed... Something saying get ready and how? What do I need to do? There's a lot of sort of high profile people sharing it. Like I saw Hillary Clinton tweeting it out. I'm like, oh, okay. The good part about it is like months later, I'm still hearing from people who stopped travel, who got their parents to stop going on cruises, who got their, especially like elderly family members, kind of put in a safe play stopped them from going on high risk things and started getting ready and were also psychologically ready when it hit. So it's very gratifying. Like lots of people just reached out afterwards to saying it was the first time I realized, wait, I got to do something. And I told my mom and dad, forget about that cruise or things like that. So there was a, it really was shared very widely, read very widely. And I thought, all right, good. I've done my sort of civic duty for this pandemic and try to focus back on how do I get ready myself? What do I need to do? How's my life gonna change? I knew, I kinda knew schools would probably close and and my college might be affected. And like I knew travel was gonna be out of bounds for a while. So I was just like working on this. And that's when I got on my (laughs) second uh, round with masks because the general research with flu and things isn't very focused on masks. And at first, I was kind of like, yeah, right. I was looking at the general research in broadly, but of course, having come from Hong Kong just very recently and being familiar with their public health guidance, I said I had purchased my own mask and I was ready. But I was seeing all this messaging that was saying masks are harmful. And I just couldn't, figure out how on earth that claim could be made. I I was like, this is just orthogonal to everything I'm seeing everywhere else in the world. That's good at this. So I started both looking into the research and looking into the arguments as horrified because nothing that the CDC or the world health organization saying was making sense. They were saying, wear a mask if you're sick. But we knew about asymptomatic transmission, and we knew that a lot of people couldn't know they were sick because they had very mild symptoms and not necessarily fever. So how on earth are they supposed to know? That didn't make sense. People were saying that you could get harmed wearing a mask, and so it just made no sense because they were saying the outside of your mask might be contaminated, and I'm like, that sounds like success. <laughs> like if outside of your mask is con- like how, on what planet could that be construed as a harm? When the alternative is you breathe in whatever contaminated the outside of your mask. So that Why do you them- think
0: people were making such ridiculous arguments?
1: I have such a couple of reasons I've construed in retrospect. Uh, one of them is genuinely groupthink because it just took off and that was part of it. But the second thing is, as Fauci has uh, since has said, they were wanting to preserve them for healthcare workers, which is a goal I share. But we had the option of cloth masks from the beginning, and even if we didn't, the way to go is not to treat the public as a hostile agent to be lied to. If the argument was these things work, but we need them for doctors and nurses, that's what we got to tell people. Like we can, and they will. People will step up. I I just like I I know we're very polarized as a country, but if as a nation we heard, you know what, masks are really useful, and it would be great if we could give one to everyone, but right now we have a shortage, and if the doctor and the nurse that's going to treat you and your loved one dies, that's not okay. People would step up. you have to step you have to be some, honest. not only that, if you lie to them or you try to misinform them, they get more suspicious, and that fuels hoarding more. yeah, like even just instrumentally, it is not a good idea. so I got the, to
0: watch uh, it I got to watch it up close and personal because uh, I was working on a bunch of the PPE. Private sector initiatives trying to step into the vacuum that the government left behind. And I remember I was talking to a number of the medical supply companies that were following this WHO guidance that masks should not be used by the public, and they were terrified that any advocacy for masks use by the public would lead to more hoarding and, and shortages. And they were they had really bought into that theory. And there was a real polarization. And I was talking to Jeremy Howard at the time, who we did previous episode uh, with brought out the crisis. And I know he, you and he have, have collaborated and, and he was putting together the initial manifesto for mask for all. And I remember playing like almost shuttle diplomat, where I was talking to him and saying, Look, could you just add some language to the manifesto to make sure you explicitly assess this point. And then I was going to the medical manufacturers and say, is this good enough? Will this yeah. deescalate? And it was interesting that there wasn't a natural impulse for folks to talk to each other. There was already such polarization and such mutual disdain. It, I was kind of like, what, what do I have to do with this? Why am I the one bringing this message back and forth, but it only took, it wasn't that hard, a few conversations, a few signs sh- of goodwill. And next thing you know, they're in a coalition together and everyone's bought off on the language and it's totally fine. Meanwhile, the public's being misinformed.
1: Right. So, and also from a public health point of view, if you want to pursue any, it is, you cannot ever lie your way to a public health win because public health depends on trust. So if you're, uh, you just cannot do it. Like it is, even if you're just purely functional, if you want to stop people to hoard, you have to convince them on something that makes sense. Because there were arguments like you'll never manage to ma- wear them. One, why on earth wouldn't people learn how to wear them? Like this is not a sensible argument. Two, everybody's going to think, even if that were true, that you it requires some sort of uh, crazy technical skill to wear one. Everybody would think I'll do the right one lead to people thinking they'll be the ones that manage it. So it would still lead to hoarding. Like the only way to fight the hoarding would be to say, please don't hoard because here's this priority and we're going to do this and we're going to give an honest you know, effort to ramp up the production. And meanwhile, we're going to use cloth masks. And you just, you need to realize every other thing, like telling them they'll contaminate the outside of their mask, people can think, right? Telling them that they'll never manage to wear it telling them that they don't protect people, telling them you could even harm yourself, which was just told to people, these are not going to work even to stop the, even if you have a higher goal. So that was part of the crisis. The other part of the crisis that we're still not over is that critical thinking is, it's not really thought as a major skill and it's not something you can just teach people because it doesn't have a single, like you can't just give people rules. Like you have to do a lot of practice and go over it and just have it instilled. And that means like just a lot of practice and teaching and learning about uh, thinking about causality and how do you measure something and how do you understand something. And one of the big problems that it's still not clear to many people, including in the medical community, to my shock is that when you argue, as people do in East Asian infectious disease experts, that you need masks for source control, which means you're trying to prevent people from infecting others, that is Mm -hmm. not something you can measure at the individual level. So you cannot say, let's. if you think about it as clean air, you cannot say we're going to put filters on the exhausts of cars, which is great to get clean air, and then measure the air inside the car To figure out whether collectively we got cleaner air because we put filters on the exhaust right Right. this is a very basic point it's a community level variable so therefore you cannot measure it at the individual level but when you're trying to do ppe for the personal protection equipment for healthcare workers you're trying to protect them from getting infected which is something you can measure at the individual level. You put the N95, the fit-tested N95 on the person, and then you check if that person got infected. And of course, that is a higher kind of level of both training and requirement because they're working in a hospital, they're working in aerosol generating places like intubation and nebulizers, all those things generate aerosols, and they're working with all around them. There's a lot more virus. So they're mm-hmm. getting subject to the virus. So protecting those people is both harder and their training fit, all that stuff matters. And it is something we measure at the individual level. We measure, did all the sort of fancy pants equipment we put on that person protect them, which is different than saying putting this flimsy looking cloth mask on everybody. Did it protect the community, which is not measured? from the person wearing the mask, but from the community level transmission. So to this day, people are saying, where's the randomized trials? And I'm like, okay, tell me how we do a randomized trial of something that is a community level variable. Like it's not, I if I can't just- It would be people.
0: unconscious. You could never get any kind of ethics review board.
1: You could potentially do it if it wasn't a deadly pandemic, if the right. status were lower. But even methodologically speaking, you would need to find a community that you could randomly divide into two uncommunicating groups because if they're communicating it's one community so you'd have to divide them into two they'd have to be the same community otherwise you're just going to do there's a river in the middle and right and left can never cross something like that you'd have to make one group wear masks like completely and you'd have to forbid the other from wearing masks so we actually floated early on some academics we did brainstorm on is there a way to satisfy the people who keep wanting a randomized trial and who don't understand that individual level trials will not work for this? That's not what is going to measure. And the only sort of, and I'm not saying that I would in a million years ever advocate or consider this, but the only places you could do would be captive, desperate populations that you could impose draconian controls on, like a refugee camp or a prison where you would order help the people to do one thing or not the other because people would look across the fence and say, oh, they're wearing masks and they would wear masks too. People (laughs) are stupid. You cannot do this. So there was really like, even just forget the ethics. uh, There wasn't even a feasible way to do a community level thing, but everybody keeps pointing to PPE randomized trials uh, that measured the individuals. I'm like, if the outcome variable is measured at the individual level, that's wearing the mask as opposed to the whole community. And there's like maybe one or two from flu that kind of fit. And that's not even exactly a fit. You Mm -hmm. cannot do this. And this is a basic methodological point about measuring this particular variable that six months in, like I I saw a a British evidence-based medicine reviews article. that was still saying where we don't have randomized trials without noting that due to the variable, you can't have randomized trials for source control. What you can have is natural experiments where like one town masks up right before the other. They're the same. Otherwise, they're a state border, things like that. So you can do some natural experiments and you can do lab studies and you can do all sorts of other things, but you're never going to get the randomized study that people think should be the standard. Because of the nature of the question. Good news is, unlike drugs, which really do require randomized uh, trials, because one, there's a lot of placebo effect, and two, there's harms. If you inject drugs into people, pharmaclinical agents, there's a good chance you're going to harm stuff, right? There's a mm-hmm. really good chance that you should do the do no harm thing first and foremost, and you should sort of stop if you can't show that. But whereas with this, there wasn't really plausible harms. People kept sort of pulling harms out of thin air, like false sense of security, which made no sense. Outside of your mask is contaminated, which is a benefit, not a harm. Uh, You'll never figure out how to wear it, which wasn't necessary. It was really uh, a combination of not listening to the Asian expertise, not looking at the evidence correctly, not understanding what source control was, and, and they just, it just rolled together. Like it was, um, I, I just couldn't believe it. I was arguing with people with medical degrees and PhDs that what they were saying, yeah, I, yeah, I I just, and I think to, and I don't mean to say that I would never be prone to this or I don't want to sound arrogant because like groupthink is, is like so core to humanity because it's socialization. We're all, can all to it. To it. we can all pray to it. Like it's, it just, it's a constant fight not to, and I'm sure I do it for this or that, but at that particular moment, I just saw it happen in front of me because it wasn't that they weren't smart enough. It's just they were in this bubble that they were, and they just, it was um, complicated maybe, but very human. And here we are. So that's how I started thinking early March. I thought, I I did the pandemic thing, but I got to write something about masks too I really and I didn't want to do it I really did not want <laughs> why not? to
0: why didn't you want to
1: okay one I was pretty certain I was right but I don't have a medical degree I am not like a public health person in any traditional sense I may have had an interest in pandemics and I was thinking I was going to be writing something against CDC, and World Health Organization advice. In my mind, I like science. I like these institutions. That's what anti-vaxxers do. The idea that I would, in the middle of a pandemic, go on the public record and say the CDC and the World Health Organization is wrong. If you told this to my 10-year-ago person, I'd be like, what happened to you? What, it, it seems like a crank, right? It seems a very, it's the kind of thing that feels very wrong to this day in my bones to have done it. And so there was like this personal reticence because of that. And I also thought, all right, I'm going to get canceled. (laughs) No, I'm serious. I thought this is it. I will write this. And that's the end of my public writing career because I'll get treated like an anti-vaxxer. It will like, I just thought it would be one little chip in a big argument and it would just not be... I I didn't think it would be that influential, uh, but I had to make the argument, like morally speaking, even if it were going to be the end of my, you know, public writing career, I thought, okay, this is how I go out. Like I do my best to speak what I think is a pretty clear truth. And, and plus I'm an academic with tenure. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So I have a day job, which means that it's hard to fire me for speech. And yes, I may not be, you know, wealthy and I may not have a trust fund or stock options and all of that, but I do have that academic privilege. And if I'm not going to use it in a pandemic, when am I going to use it? Yeah, exactly. If I'm not going to use it to speak what I think are important truths in the middle of a pandemic, what is the point of having chosen this life? Why didn't I just go try to make more money somewhere or some other thing, or I don't know, do something other with my life. This is one of the reasons so I thought, all right, you know what? I'm going to write this. It'll be a small little chink in this argument. And I'm probably going to get treated like an anti-vaxxer. I'll get a not enormous amount of pushback. I will, I'll be canceled. <laughs> as one says, but it's a pandemic. It's my moral It'll duty. It. It, it's I, personally, I thought I, it's a, I I can't not do it. Then I also wish somebody else did it. Like I waited a little bit to see if somebody from the public health community who is better credentialed would do it. Not because I cared about my own credentials not being enough, because I was pretty clear that the argument was strong, but I thought they would have a better chance. Mm-hmm. I thought it would have, like if somebody else besides me led this you know, with a you know medical degree or a public health degree, I thought they will be better more effective spokespeople. And I really, at that point, effectiveness, if somebody told me just, you don't ever write this, and somebody else takes the lead, but they have a medical degree from some top school that gets this thing adopted, sure, I'd be, yes, please. I don't need my name on anything. I just need this to happen. But I waited, and it wasn't really happening. So I went to my uh, editor at New York Times, and I hadn't been writing there for a while, and then then he was busy and he sent me along to another person from the editorial board who just was like, yes, let's publish this. I, I didn't think they'd take it. I thought they'll, because again, again, CDC, he just, he was great. He just said, let's do this. And he didn't make me water it down. Like I got to say masks work without the 30 caveats or stuff like that. I got to say, I got to put in... What, it went through fact check, of course, but the fact that it contradicted CDC guidelines didn't trip it up. I got to back it up with the studies and the other things and all the other things. And I got to write the piece I would have written saying this isn't hey, the mask work, there's asymptomatic spread, you cannot get people not to hoard by telling them that they don't work. so I got to say basically most parts of the argument, I mean, again, it's one piece, it's like a thousand words, uh, but I got to make the points that I wanted to make. And I sent it along and I thought, all right, it's been good being a public intellectual. And I always wanted to learn some (laughs) other hobbies and, you know, it'll be a pandemic. And I I was literally thinking this is it. And then I'll just (laughs) go back to my I'll just take some time off and do other things, and it'll be. It reminds be- me of when
0: Benjamin Franklin would said he used to go, go to sleep on the floor the night before he was going to do something like this to remind himself that he didn't need the comforts of his home. <laughs> you know, he needed to take a cry, just stand,
1: right? I, yeah, again, I don't need to be a public intellectual to survive, right? I mean, or just be myself. So I thought, all right, it wasn't that drastic. I, I wasn't going to be. Uh, kicked out of my house.
0: So what did happen? So
1: what did happen was I immediately got flooded with a large number of people from the medical community saying thank you, which really? was very interesting. Yeah, which was like I got, including from like local medical schools and all sorts of public health and medical people who were like thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, which did you resist
0: was, the urge to say why weren't you writing this? What, why did I have to write uh, it? Well, of
1: course I didn't write. I didn't really want to go question whoever happened to be available to question, right? Sometimes that happens, yeah. this uh, availability bias, right? I was totally
0: unfair. Yeah,
1: I was not going to sort of uh, hold to account the only people who are kind of <laughs> willing to say this. And, and one of the things that I've later realized that it it's harder for them to go and ask the CDC and the World Health Organization mm. than it was for me, right? They're, uh, yeah, you know, they're a lot more. It, connected into that power structure, right. which of is course. what it is. And I got a lot more email from people who told me, oh, great, we're not crazy. Because people had been squinting at the argument and saying, wait, what happens if the outside of my mask is contaminated? Like, they'd, like the argument made no sense on face value and people were being literally gaslighted into mm-hmm. this kind of thing. And so I got a lot of email from uh, people telling me, Thank you for making this clear. I got an email from another, I got communication from people who later told me that it was a pivotal moment for the CDC because they had factions within and they just now got public pressure. Like it helped create, uh, it ended up, I'm super privileged, like I'm honored that it got to be a pivotal moment because it was the first big op ed on this, like in a place like New York Times. I don't even know if there was any other anywhere in the Western sort of US press, the East Asia, they were way ahead of us. So I wasn't like pioneering anything. I was like saying, can we please like come to our senses and look at the evidence and look at what we're doing. So it turned out to be a major turning point because, you know, once it was published in a high profile platform, I have my own sort of platform so I'm not like I can get stuff out but it was like it was just went beyond me it wasn't like I was just promoting it it was just went fairly widespread and then it changed from what I can tell like the what people felt permitted to speak which is something I researched like the Overton window all of a sudden people started saying things like of course like if there's a false sense of security from masks why isn't there for hand washing uh, right, it would apply to that as well. It's just why, like, where is the evidence that it applies only to this? If anything, by the way, false sense of security uh, would not apply to masks because it's a visible reminder to distance. So mm-hmm. since then, we know it actually promotes distancing, and that makes sense, sociologically speaking, that it would reinforce other measures rather than undermine them. But them. yeah, exactly. So there is this bizarre... Interest. I'm again. I'm like I partly lucked into it, partly chose to do it, and partly I was able to do it. Which is what I keep telling people. uh, The as an institution, there's a lot of things wrong with like academic institutions, but the kind of freedom of speech you get without having to have millions of dollars or trust funds or rich parents or. All those things none of which i had is quite valuable like it's one of the few places where i thought all right i will write this and then like i will not get fired and it might not have been the same for other people or like the sort of probably doctors wouldn't have gotten fired either but it's a different i guess that's sort of the power structure and hierarchy for them was somewhat different. So I got to do this. And then it became this big moment for me too. And also for this thing. And then Jeremy was on the same page, Jeremy Howard. And yeah. then he ended up write, writing, a couple of weeks later, he re- ended up writing a more direct one for the Washington Post. And then he and I actually co-wrote a few things. We wrote one uh, for the Atlantic, my current writing home. Uh, explaining, look, source control is different than PPE. This is what you can do. This is why you don't wear the mask cook valves. This is what you do. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, a good thing to have done because we didn't have that clear thing. I also ended up writing just early April when the evidence was really clear that outdoors was much safer. So in April, I, I, by that time, like early April, this is two weeks later, I'm just, what's the right word? You only live once. It was, this is my first pandemic. I'm just going to keep doing this. And I saw all these places closing parks and beaches. And I called it
0: beach scolding, right? Yeah.
1: Like actually in April, I wrote very early on in April. I don't know. Uh, first week, I wrote one saying closing parks is pandemic theater. There's enough evidence that like it's incredibly unlikely. And difficult to transmit this outdoors. There's only a few known cases in the whole literature. The few known cases are people close talking, close to each other. There's all sorts of other outdoor things that don't result in any outbreak of any sort. And all of the ones we can trace are indoors. Mm -hmm. And there's also a lot of science behind this. Sunlight inactivates viruses. The air dilutes them. You're outdoors in a large space, so air dilutes them. That we have history for this in flu pandemics before we've moved to outdoor schools and hospitals exactly because sunlight uh, helps inactivate viruses. So it's like both scientifically speaking and epidemiological evidence-wise, it was pretty clear we needed to get people outdoors. And also, and I think this is the part where we talked about my background, I'm always thinking how is this going to affect more vulnerable people part- because that's partly my own background too. I mean, it's not just my training, but because I'm thinking we're closing parks and a lot of people who are making these decisions have yards, but a lot of people in apartment complexes do not have yards and they're under the super high stress environment and they don't have a place to go. And like, how is this going to be sustainable for a year uh, when we have a perfectly healthy alternative, which if it gets congested, there are ways to manage it. There are ways to make things, you know, less congested rather than completely shutting them down or doing things like that. Okay. So the outdoor spaces were clearly safer because we had epidemiology at this point that showed us the outbreaks were happening indoors, not outdoors. And scientifically that made sense because sunlight inactivates viruses, and the air dilutes them so you don't have the same concentration. So there was every bit of evidence for saying, go outdoors, parks and beaches rather than stay indoors. And of course, not everybody has yards and backyards to relax. So it was really important to highlight safe ways to do things and have a break from being indoors. So I did that one early on too.
0: Do you have a theory for why uh, news articles that are clearly about indoor super spreading events have the uh, caption photo? You know, the, the photo at the top of the page is people on a beach. And you've pointed out so many of those examples on social media, but do you have a theory for why that keeps happening?
1: So we think we're like 21st century rational creatures. And I don't think we have moved beyond a framework of sin for illness to be honest i think we are I, and i'm serious about this we're still seeing a lot of things like this like infections and illnesses as moral failings and and feeling like if we just sacrifice enough we can we can get rid of them it's, it's this is a deep thing this is like the country's founding is the calvinism the puritanism there's a idea that you respond to disease with repenting and sacrificing and people having fun at the beach safely really doesn't work with that framework because they're doing something that is both fun and healthy and we seem to separate fun and healthy. And <laughs> you know, it's almost right. like you have to be suffering.
0: It feels like cheating.
1: Yeah, it feels like <laughs> cheating, whereas it's actually great. It's a win. You get to do something that's both healthy. But So we immediately put diseases into the moralizing framework, mm-hmm. like the bad people, the good people, uh, the deserving, the undeserving, and the sacrificing, the not sacrificing. And if there's a way to avoid the disease while not sacrificing, that goes against a very deep cultural framework, I think, in the U.S. especially. So I have collected articles from cities that don't have beaches, <laughs> have beach pictures in their coronavirus articles. Like, they don't even have a beach themselves. And they, or there's an article about contact tracing, and there's a beach picture. York Times has an article about young people contracting it, and we know it's indoor bars, restaurants, and grocery stores, essential workers, Meatpacking plants. So there's a youth outbreak, but it's all indoors and very different settings. What do they have? Two women at a beach, completely empty beach, by the way. <laughs> there's just the two yeah, of completely them. Completely safe. Yeah, and uh, so I think it's a. At this point, there are so many of them, it is pathological. Like it is not. I used. I I first thought this is just a reflex, like the photo editors are just reaching for the beach picture, but after like months of collecting these things. I think it's beyond the photo editors just are finding something easy because to put a beach picture in a city without a beach, it's telling you something about our culture.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's telling you something about our psyche as a nation that we still haven't realized the virus doesn't care about whether you're having fun, but cares about ventilation and you know your ACE receptors and all of that.
0: One of the things that's really struck me in these conversations is the role that social media has played in both informing almost every guest that I've spoken to, everyone who's been organizing a movement from Masks for All to the folks working on PPE or a hunger or even some of the scientific breakthroughs, the collaboration that social media has allowed, it comes up again and again. And even in the kind of personal stories that we've had of becoming aware of this menacing threat and uh, the information coming out of China, so much of that was mediated through social media. And uh, given you have such expertise in the way that movements and protest movements have used social media to organize the the decentralized nature of communication on social media, but then also its harmful effects, the way that it can be co-opted by by state actors and for misinformation, I felt like I got to ask you, What's your take on the social media angle? How has it affected the pandemic and our ability to respond to? it?
1: So at the risk of being uh, very original, I have to say it's the best of times and it's the worst of times, because if you wanted to be very well-informed, I don't see how you could have a better environment. Since this has begun, I have curated my own list of public health and medical experts who comment on papers and point out stuff I might have missed and who challenge me if I overinterpret something. It's amazing. On the other hand, there's an enormous amount of things that appeal to whatever the uh, moment happens to be. Right now, the moment is sensationalism and fear and beaches. So there's an endless amount of those. Before it was it's not a big deal. And there was an endless amount of those. So it's a very difficult time for someone who cannot or is not in a position to tell which is which. So it's not like I think a lot of people like us who are at the benefited end of things where we just say, oh, look, this is great. I'm so well informed that there are all these people uh, that I can follow don't realize One, that takes a lot of effort. And two, it's really not easy because whatever kind of expert you want, you can find it. Like, how do you pick which is which, right? And when you have a environment in which you can't even trust the World Health Organization or the CDC to be always right, although they're, of course, overwhelmingly, but like they were wrong and late on math. So what else are they wrong and late on? That is very difficult as a question. Like, it is really not an easy question because I can't, if you had to make a guess, I would say trust them, even if you can't tell it apart, because they're, of course, overwhelmingly, but occasionally they're not. And to tell those apart is neither easy nor I I don't even know what the prescription for that would be. Like, it's uh, one of those epistemological turtles all the way kind of questions. You have to have enough knowledge that you almost don't need them before you can be confident about which uh, portion of their message may have an issue. So that's how, that's why I think the social media is, in general, has fed with traditional media too into waves of groupthink. It's like, we're, well, that's what we're seeing with traditional media too. Like we're, the beach scolding is also very prominent on social media. People will retweet those things. I've seen so many of those people like retweeting pictures of beaches saying we're going to we're all gonna die because of these people having fun. So I've seen a lot of those. They go viral very easily. There's a guy in Florida
0: the attorney. Guy.
1: Yeah. Attorney. He's going around wearing lots of clothes, harassing beachgoers. As far as I can tell, the only threat to the beachgoers is the guy himself. And the only thing he can be a good example of is he's covered. So he's not, he's covered from the sun because he's in that black suit. And so that's, that's, you know, fine. Like if you want to, if his message was skin cancer is bad, maybe, but other than that, he's genuinely harmful. Because he's just going and harassing random people who are not near anybody else with cameras following him. And what is the end point to get everybody indoors where they're at risk of infection? This is At this point, he's it's a, it's, it's a public health threat, if you ask me. Uh, but it plays very well on social media because it's, again, moralizing. It's looking down on people. And he tends to go find Trump supporters to argue with. So he's arguing with someone that is easier for his audience to look at and say, look how stupid that guy is, the guy that the Grim Reaper is arguing with, or how wrong he is, without noticing the Grim Reaper is wrong and stupid in his own way, and in fact, quite harmful in his own way. But they only see the other side of it, but it plays really well in this kind of tribalized environment, and it plays well, I think, for media too, because... The traditional media is not any different than social media in some ways, in that they also need the eyeballs, and they are also human. So, if scolding the beachgoers is what helps us feel moral, they're going to put beach pictures there. So, gets more
0: people to read their Probably can justify it as getting more people to read their excellent reporting.
1: It might not even be getting people to read it. They might really. So I think it's at this point. It's really our need to moralize.
0: It's built. It's innate. Yeah,
1: yeah. Where they like, it's are we? This the sort of cultural thing of moralizing those mm-hmm. bad people who brought it on us, who are not doing the proper sacrifice like we're doing, and so that's the kind of thing. It's just all swirled into, and that's what to me explains this endless the reinfection articles. Like there's nothing mm-hmm. really there. Like, if really it was a thing, I'm not against worrying about things that are things, but there's not a, there's not a thing there to worry about. But there's been so much, like both social media and traditional media articles about Mm -hmm. it. It's okay. This is, this is just a doom scrolling. It's giving people, people want almost are attracted right Mm -hmm. now to the bad news. So we're being,
0: it's our our penance for having been overly optimistic.
1: Correct. We're, we're, you got the exact right thing. We're in a penance mode right now. And again, it's a virus. It doesn't care about your uh cultural leanings. So people are feeling like if we could only sacrifice more. And I'm from the Middle East, right? We do the self flagellation and all that. I get it. Like I get the cultural thing, but it doesn't help with like we do need some sacrifices, but there are a lot of things we need to do that don't have any
0: to be smart about it. Yeah. Before we wrap, I want to just get your view on what you think the long term impact of the crisis will be.
1: So it depends. That's a very good question. It depends whether we learn from this. So I've been joking about our tragic but starter pandemic. It's tragic because it's terrible. There's no question about it, but it's not the worst possible pandemic we could have had. Not even close. Not even close. And also, it's shown us every weakness we have. It's shown us what it means to elect Trump. I think the past three years before this, a lot of people were like, my 401k is doing great. And a lot of people in your tech world might've been thinking, yeah, it wasn't great for the Muslim ban and maybe the immigrants, but he didn't regulate tech and we're doing great. There might, a lot of people might've been thinking it wasn't as bad as they thought it would be. And from the beginning, I kept saying some people might be in the first class of Titanic and they'll definitely do better, but it is still the same ship. It's true. More people in the first class survived and more people right now in Silicon Valley are doing fairly well in the pandemic. They get to work remotely. They've gotten rid of the commute. So they might even be enjoying this. But you know what? At some point, if the whole society goes down, it takes all of us down, uh, even if those more privileged can manage not to have a terrible time, especially at first. So I think it's shown us every weakness we have, what it means to undermine scientific authority, but what it also means to have a scientific community that isn't as much on guard against groupthink as it should be. And I say this with the acknowledgement that among all the communities around there, it's really one that's resistant to it. Like when we fail as a scientific community, at least we're failing from it. Like our whole institutions are set up to try to not uh, fall to this very human thing. Uh, so it's shown that we're not, we need to be stronger about it. Like we need to be faster to the evidence. We need to, the public health messaging needs to, like there's every kind of thing you can think of. We have been given a tragic but loud warning. It came at the cost of many people that lives disrupted, economic disruption and all of that. But it's also exposed all of our weaknesses to us in a way that's undeniable. So the question will be, let's have an optimistic scenario. Let's say that a vaccine development is genuinely going better than I thought, which is great. It just shows you, I guess, when you put this much resources into something. There's a lot of good things. And let's say we get lucky with something like, say T cell reactivity, that there is some immunity, not necessarily to being infected, but to the severity from other coronaviruses. I'm just saying this as a potential scenario in front of us. And let's say we have some breakthrough treatments like DEXA that really cut down, like we have a few of them. So let's say we go into fall, realizing that we have more immunity, To severity of infection or illness than we thought, that we have good sort of treatments, antibodies, treatments, or other uh, sort of treatments that cut down the death rate and severity of the illness, plus we get a vaccine quickly. And what happens next, to me, depends on if the message is we got lucky or we should learn from it. Right. If we get lucky and we think that luck is success rather than luck and don't fix what we didn't fix before. Because see, this is the thing. When SARS happened and we didn't get a pandemic, lots of people looked at it and thought, oh, look, we don't have to worry about this stuff. We have it under control. Whereas my reaction was like, boy, we got lucky. Like We got lucky because we had fever as a reliable indicator and we managed to get this just in the nick of time. So if you confuse luck with sort of skill and competence, you'll fail the next time. In fact, to tie it back to the tech, a lot of people in tech who are leading stuff and who are very wealthy are, uh, I'm sure, smart and hardworking people, but they're more lucky than anything else. There was something in the air and they were first to it and they worked really hard, but they didn't necessarily have the chops to lead a 2 billion person public sphere, let's say. That doesn't make them like not successful. It just means that uh, there's a lot of luck in deciding who got to be that person. But if you don't recognize it as luck, then you sort of don't recognize when you're in over your head. And it's the kind of thing that I don't think anybody could avoid being in over their head, to be honest. (laughs) I don't think there's a human on this planet who could be put in the position of being CEO of something like Facebook and not be in over their head. But recognizing that this is not something that a person can handle would bring the humility and the required steps to say, how do we fix this? Because it is not an easy problem. There is not like a simple solution. So that's what I think with the pandemic too, is if we get lucky, that it ends less worse than we feared. And things kind of align what happens next depends on whether we just shrug it off and go back to sort of um after World War one, right? The world had a choice. It could either set up stuff to make sure that France and Germany didn't go to war didn't go to war every other year or it could just not <laughs> and it did not uh, after World War two we did after World War two, we did finally set up things to. Create integration in Europe and demilitarize Germany properly, and all of those things. But it's kind of like that. If you don't do the necessary steps, you'll just come back to the next crisis underprepared, and we don't know what do you, we don't know what the next crisis will be.
0: So we've covered a lot of ground, and I really appreciate you taking the time for this conversation. If you had to summarize it for someone, you know, there'll be somebody listening to this maybe who will one day be in a position to help shape or rebuild that new normal that we're going to get to on the other side? What would be your summary? What do you want us to learn? What do you want us to build? What would it mean to do it properly? How do we get out of the crisis?
1: Well, we have to rebuild and figure out how to build institutions for the 21st century challenges we face. I'm a very, I'm I'm like a strong optimist in the power of institutional incentive setups. Like, I don't believe in heroes. Because by the time you need heroes, then you're in big trouble. And maybe you get your lucky with heroes, but historically speaking, most of your heroes aren't going to turn out to be powerful enough, and it's not going to work. You need to set up the right incentives and the right institutions. And when you do that, you don't need heroes, plus things actually work properly. And we don't have any of that. There's an enormous... Anyway, I was talking about, like, how we tell our stories. A lot of our stories are focused on the individual making a difference. And I don't, like, yes, of course, individuals make a difference, but that's not really how the world changes. Uh, the world changes when you change the incentives under which people operate. You change the game. You don't just magically import uh, brilliant players who are so smart and full of good hearts. You change how the games rules are organized. So I would really want to say, what does it mean to build that kind of infrastructure? And that kind of infrastructure is at every level, at the education, at government, at your company, at your... It's a different way of thinking. And we've lost that way of thinking. We've built a lot of good institutions, say the Environmental Protection Agency or the FDA. Like I'm giving US examples Or Mm -hmm. like the US nonprofits, they're not perfect. By all means, I don't mean to say these institutions don't have overreach or problems or things like that. But by and large, you look at, say, something like, say, Earth Day in 1970s in New York. If you look at the first Earth Day, you can't see the billboard they're holding because there's so much smog and pollution in New York. 20 years later, 30 years later, it's gone because we built incentives and we said, we're going to fix this. That's the kind of thing we need to figure out how to do. We took, there's so many examples. We took uh, tin metal tubes and we hur- hurled them into sky and they don't fall out and they're, they're super safe. That didn't just happen. It's huge institution building, the safety culture, all those things that went into making commercial flying a super safe thing. There's all these examples of when we say we're going to fix this, we do that. So we have to do that for our information environment, which includes all the social media. We have to do that for our government. And the problem is, of course, this is like a every year we don't do it, it gets harder. Every year we don't fix something, we also corrupt the tools we need to fix it. So if we had started in 2012, it would have been better because after 2016, we lose a lot more ground. But in general, just like with any nonlinear process today is better than tomorrow so you need this big social reckoning about what does it mean to build institutions for 21st century i know there's this whole let's build essay that kind of got a lot of attention on like why don't we build the high speed trains and the big buildings and all these sort of clean airports in the us and i want to say why don't we have why don't we build other stuff why don't we have the kind of public health infrastructure Taiwan had, for example. Why don't we build other institutions, like not just buildings and uh, fast trains, but institutions? And that's not as sexy perhaps, but you know what? It really, it makes the world go around and it's it's sorely lacking. We'd rather have uh, Bruce Willis shoot an asteroid out of space than uh, think about how do you do something that can eliminate smallpox, which to me is a miracle. Like It's a miracle that humans have pulled off. I don't even know if there's a movie about it. Like It's the kind of thing I would watch and cry. And I don't think... Yeah, where's a, the Norman
0: Borlaug movie? Yeah,
1: where are the movies about these heroic changes? And usually, well, I'm going to say, it's usually not... I would even want... You need a person usually for the movie, but it's almost always a whole set of institutions like not just a person. And it's harder to tell an interesting story about an institution, but that's what makes the difference in the long run. We laugh at bureaucrats, but a well-functioning bureaucracy is a wonderful thing. A well-functioning bureaucracy is a wonderful thing. Yes, a badly functioning one can be a nightmare, but it makes I I, I just put my garbage out and I just stared at it. And I was like, I cannot believe it. Like I put my garbage in a bin and somebody comes and takes care of that and hopefully in as environmentally healthy way as possible those kinds of little things people don't notice how much institution building goes into making our world livable and we let them fall and we're already paying the price and we got a lot so we need to keep the ones we have and fix them and build new ones build as new we ones. need yeah build new ones because 21st century needs its own institutions. We can't just, I'm not nostalgic at all. I don't want to go back to the past. I just want to figure out what works for the future.
0: That's a wonderful note to end on. Uh, Sainab, thank you so much for your work and for taking the time to have this conversation. Thank you
1: for having the patience to let me talk so much.
0: (laughs) This has been Out of the Crisis. I'm Eric Reese. Out of the Crisis is produced by Ben Ehrlich, edited by Jacob Tender and Sean McGuire. Music composed and performed by Cody Martin. Hosting by Breaker. For more information on the COVID-19 crisis and ways you can help, visit helpwithcovid.com. If you are working on a project related to the pandemic, please reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at E-R-I-C-R-I-E-S. Thanks for listening.